thank you. It's good to worship with you. What a, what a privilege to be here. We get to continue our study of the, the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5, uh, expectant that the Lord will continue to teach us. So uh, I, I think I told you, what was it, two weeks ago when we started, that uh, I have really fallen in love with the Sermon on the Mount about 20 years ago and have continued to, to wonder at it, to enjoy it. Um, it's the most written-on text in the entire Bible. And of course, the Bible is by far the best-selling book in history. So this is, in some ways, the, the best part of the best book ever written. Um, and uh, I think you might remember the first week, uh, this picture that I showed you, not only is it famous in adult literature, it is also famous in children's literature. Uh, I was halfway through the summer um, and opened up a, a book of my daughter's, and I was reading, and we got to this, this page, and obviously it's the Sermon on the Mount. And, um, but I didn't sort of tell you the backstory, so, you know, I, I, of course, being the clever, insightful father, say, who's that? And she gets the right answer, right? That's Jesus. And then she says to me, what's he saying? Well, I've been in love with this book for 20 years, right? I, I'm like a month into preparing to preach on this book, and it's sort of like, and my two-year-old wants to know, hey, tell me what the Sermon on the Mount is <laughs> in two-year-old vocabulary. And uh, I don't know, you parents in the room probably have had that experience of wanting so, so badly to, to explain something, but I think there's something really telling in that. Those things that are most important to us, explaining simply why, uh, I think there's something really telling in what comes out. So, uh, also if you're a parent, you know, luckily, uh, the first time you read a book will not be the last. So about the fourth time through when she said, what's he saying, I felt like I got my answer right. Um, luckily, there's been about ten times since then, for repetition's sake. Uh, so. Uh, I've, I've sort of shared with you what I think is the central sort of message that Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount. First, Jesus is saying, I want you to treasure God as your Father in heaven. So he has this, this unique picture that he wants us to see of God as a Father, as our Father, from a heavenly perspective, whose view is higher, whose view is better. And then second, Jesus says, I want you to trust that God's ways are good. God's purposes are good. They're wonderful. And finally, Jesus says to those who will listen, I want you to flourish by following wholeheartedly. Follow Jesus' ways wholeheartedly. And so um, I actually, since I was telling you about my kid, I put in the kid version here. Uh, this, is, this is my version for my two-year-old. God is a good daddy. His rules are loving. Obeying him is safe and good. And if any 80-year-old could grasp what I want my two-year-old to grasp, I'd say they've really got the Sermon on the Mount. This is something I aspire to understand. I aspire to embrace wholeheartedly. So we're, uh, what is it, three weeks in, I want to go back. Jesus is, is sort of brilliant in the way he lays the groundwork and progresses. So I want to just sort of refresh your memory. If you've been here, if you've been away, 
um, I want to sort of remind you, this is starting in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus, uh, Matthew writes to us, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount, right? And Jesus' crowd included Pharisees and tax collectors, people who thought they were incredibly righteous in their own eyes, people who, who knew they were broken. And it also, the next verse says, his disciples came to him. So his crowd also included people who had given their lives to Jesus. Quite literally, they were following Jesus day by day. And so Jesus has this, this crowd that's listening, and he's speaking to different parts of the crowd. And you can hear him, I think, brilliantly sort of, sort of convict at the same time as he encourages, speaking to different parts of the crowd. And the first words out of his mouth are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Which was a shock to them, should be actually a shock to us. What does it take to be blessed by God? It's not having it all together. It's not pretending like your hair is neatly combed and your clothes are nice and you're smiling at everybody. It's being poor in spirit. It's recognizing that you are broken and that I am broken. Then he goes on, blessed are those who mourn, who are grieved because we're broken. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who humble themselves because they're broken. And then sort of this, this culmination Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And this is what, what we would call uh, in the modern church the gospel. That's just Old English for the good news. The good news is that God doesn't expect us to already be together. He expects us to recognize that we're broken and that we need him. And to hunger and thirst for something that we don't play like we have without God. We don't play like we have this perfect, right relationship without God. We simply say to God, I want what you have. And we're filled by a loving Father. And that's sort of where Jesus starts. And then he begins to unpack, what does that look like? What does it be look like? We saying, what does it look like to be called a child of God and to experience belonging to the one who created the heavens and the earth? And uh, you might remember Last week, we talked about Jesus saying, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You were intended to be a blessing, just the way salt is, just the way light is. But you were also meant to be a force for good in the world. You were meant to be a life-giving presence in the world. And then Jesus says something else that probably shocked his audience, maybe shocks us a little bit. He said in verse 17... Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So, Jesus is saying there's, there's this Old Testament law, and I know the, these people called the Pharisees have extended that law and made it really technical, and it's almost impossible to follow. And I know some people would hope that I'd say, you know, just sort of let it go, don't worry about that. I didn't come to abolish it, I came to fulfill it. And so, frankly, hopefully, he has evoked some sort of like, like tension within you. What does that look like? What does it look like not to abolish the law, but that Christ has fulfilled it? And hopefully that's a tension because that's what he's talking about throughout the rest of chapter 5. That's actually what we'll be talking about today. Uh, let's read the text together today. You... 
uh, it's in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, that's a, an Aramaic phrase that's sort of a term of contempt, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way. Otherwise, he may hand you over to the officer and the judge may hand you, hand you over to the judge, I'm sorry, and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So, remember that Jesus' audience, he had these crowds that were gathered, almost entirely they were Hebrew. They were of Jewish descent, right? And so when they heard the law, what would they have thought of first and foremost? Well, they would have thought of the Ten Commandments, you know. Um, they'd watch the Charlton Heston movie, just kidding. Uh, you know, they'd, they'd think of the Ten Commandments because they knew the law was bigger than that, but sort of this, this is kind of the pinnacle of the law. Um, in fact, that first week, uh, I mentioned to you that Jesus going on a mountainside and proclaiming actually would have been reminiscent for them of Moses actually proclaiming the Ten Commandments on a mountainside. So somehow they would be thinking about this and, uh, you know, probably every Hebrew that was at least six or seven years old would have known these Ten Commandments by heart. And we, we're maybe a little more rusty, so I'll run you through them real quick. So the first four are about interacting with God. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Do not make a graven image. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then there's one sort of in-between, in-between interacting with God and everybody else. There's honor your father and mother, right? And then there's five commandments that talk about our interaction with everybody else. Uh, what is it? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not lie, uh, do not steal, and do not covet. And so what Jesus is doing is he's starting out at the top of the, I hope, oh, that's not actually that list. So if it looks like that's not that list, that's on purpose. Okay. Um, Jesus is starting at the top of that list, and he is actually going to run through five things. Some Bibles break it into six because uh, adultery they sort of have two sections on. But you can see chapter five sort of runs through this list. And Jesus says again and again, you have heard but I tell you, okay? So in many ways, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, this is how other people have interpreted this. This is how I want you to understand this. Um, Tim Keller uh, uh, was a pastor for 40 years in New York City. I just really enjoy his writing. And he, he sort of summarizes this this way. He says, on one hand, liberal religion says, just do your best. And in the extreme, you know, everybody fails, so don't really worry about it. Conservative religion says, here are the rules, just suck it up and do it. God's religion 
says, man looks at the outward appearance. What can I see? God looks at the heart. And he cares about your heart. And so I want you to notice, and we'll, we'll continue throughout the future weeks going through these, but I want you to notice sort of overall, if you had to summarize what Jesus is saying here, this is what it sounds like. It sounds like you've heard it said don't murder, but God sees your heart. Don't commit adultery is what people can see. God sees your heart. You've heard it say don't break your oaths, but can you see God's heart behind that? You've heard it said, don't be overly vengeful. Can you see God's heart towards other people? You've heard it said, don't be too hateful. Can you see God's heart there? And I want you to notice, I think, I think Jesus is actually subtly weaving this in. I, I told you what those last five commandments are. Notice how the first two are sort of dead on, right? He's exactly quoting the commandments. And I think Jesus has sort of a a, a sub-point that he's making here. When all we try to do is sort of check off this list of, well, I'm not really worried about the spirit of the law. I'm not really worried about God's heart here. I'm just trying to check it off. I think ultimately what we do is what Jesus is ascribing here. We start out right on, and by the end, don't be too hateful. Well, that is not what covetousness is about, right? It somehow gets more and more off. So Jesus is comparing two things, okay? And this goes through actually most of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. He's not comparing should you murder and shouldn't you murder. Let's just clear that up real quick, right? In case anybody was unclear, Jesus expected his whole audience not to kill anybody, right? And not to commit adultery. Jesus is contrasting someone who says, just have this action and that's enough with what God's heart was, how you should live out the commandments and why you should live out the commandments, okay? Now, um, I'm sure many men in the room can commiserate. So my wife was reading something profound that's changed my thinking uh, this week. It's been really good. She's a part of the servant leader training class, and so I'm doing some of that reading with her. And part of that reading was about this idea of story. This idea that really so much in life comes down to what story are you telling yourself? Um, and so I think I have here, in some ways, I believe what Jesus is saying here is what is the story you tell yourself about life? But so often we don't do that consciously. So I'm just looking at myself in the morning, right? The first thing most of us do in the day is get up. All of you actually got up, you know. There's probably somebody who hasn't. But anyway, the point is, you get up, and the question is why. Well, many days, it, it sounds sort of like this inside Keith's head. Ah, oh, I'm tired. Uh, I'd like to stay in bed, but if I don't get up, bad things are going to happen. I kind of have to. Oh. And, and so easily, I can get into that story throughout the day. My, this is... This is a hassle. Guy, I wish life were a little easier. See how I'm telling myself sort of a story throughout life? I'm telling myself a story to make sense of the various things during day. Guy, you know, why did I have to get this extra thing that's going to delay me for half an hour? And I sort of run through this story in my head that would be frankly embarrassing if I had to play it out for a five-year-old, right? If I had to explain to a five-year-old, yeah, um... 
so the story I'm playing in my head is, I'm so important that nobody should inconvenience me because, dang it, I'm so important, right? That's the story. I mean, it doesn't even make much sense. So often the stories that we tell ourselves are flat-out lies, right? I was thinking of that as we were singing this song, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. You, have you thought about the fact that worship songs are very often about correcting the story that I tell myself? Correcting it to the story of Scripture. Because I contend, um, just like my wife's reading this week, that, um, that the Bible is a story. I mean, from Genesis 1, right, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible is the story of God creating and redeeming all things, and inviting us to be a part of it. The Bible is the story of God's good ways, and us having the opportunity to flourish by following those good ways. All the way to the end of Revelation, where John writes in the last chapter, right at the end of Jesus, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the story. That is the true story that is being told throughout all of history. And when one becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, one gets invited into that story as a child of God, recognizing God as your heavenly Father. But the challenge so often is to remember that story. Okay? So I want to go back to the text. And I want to look at what story might one be telling oneself. So, you've heard it say, don't murder. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Well, what story makes one angry? You know, guy, I got cut off in traffic and I'm ticked because God loved that person so much in front of me. And he is in the process of redeeming the world. No, no, <laughs> that's the other story. That's the story you're intentionally silencing when you're like, God, I hope there's a cop around the corner and he gets his, right? <laughs> right? Uh, what, what is anger? Honestly, anger for me is almost always getting confused about which story I'm telling myself. Guy, this is inconvenient. Guy, that person has belittled me because I'm so important in the grand scheme of things, right? The, that the story about anger is, um, is a story of missing sort of God's good story and our invitation to be a part of it. I want to take just a moment, that phrase, is angry with, your, with a brother. Um, so there's, uh, if, if you read sort of, uh, what, theological literature, first off, that word brother uh, is, is somehow gender neutral, can be gender neutral, kind of like, um, hermanos in Espanol, uh, you know, what happens is the, the male form is sort of the default. So if you think, oh, phew, I can be mad at women. That's not, <laughs> it's not, quite, <laughs> it's not quite what it's talking about. Um, similarly, there seems to be this sort of silly debate about, um, well, brother, does that mean I, I, can, be, um, I can be mad at non-believers because they're not really brothers in Christ? Well, I contend that is exactly what Jesus is teaching against, right? Well, I don't have to be, 
I can't be hateful to you, but as soon as I get out those doors, man, I can be hateful. That is exactly sort of the duplicity that Jesus is talking against. He is calling us to see God's story, God's redemptive story, and to love anyone, right? He actually told a parable when somebody asked him, now, who is my brother? Basically saying, your, your brother is everyone you see, should be everyone you see. So, uh, he has this interesting progression. Then he sort of goes back. And again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, Raka is this um, Aramaic term of contempt, um, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. That would have been their court. So he's saying, now, now you guys are Hebrews, and you know there's actually a law against this, I guess, pretty strong term that means I hate you and wish you'd walk off a cliff. And he says, but anyone who says you fool would be in danger, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So if you think about contempt as basically saying you're an idiot and I hope you walk off a cliff, right? That's contempt. Disdain would be just, just you're an idiot, right? So Jesus is saying, well, you know, is it enough to sort of step back from contempt, I hate you and I wish you die, to just I hate you? Well, of course not right? Jesus is saying the exact same point again, but recognize the story that would go on in, in a Hebrew's heart or in your heart or my heart that would cause us to say, lightly, you fool, or strongly, I wish something bad would happen to you. In fact, I don't know if you've turned on a television lately or been unlucky enough to walk by someone, somebody else's, but it's hard to turn on the news at times without a sense of contempt. And can you hear the story that is being told? If you were to explain it to a five-year-old, what would you have to tell them? What would that story have to be? Well, uh, there's somebody who, who sees healthcare very differently than I do. And mind you, I don't really have all the answers about healthcare, but man, I hate them so much I wish they'd go off and die. What? I mean, the story is ridiculous if you had to say it out loud to a five-year-old, and yet somehow I am in danger of nursing that in my heart, right? Let's imagine that someone was patently wrong. What would be the natural, appropriate response if I were believing the true story throughout human history? God is in the process of redeeming all things. Okay, yeah, this person is wrong. Man, Lord, would you redeem them? That's what I'd love my five-year-old to do, right? But what about me? And so I would contend that at the same time, as Jesus is saying, sure, don't murder. He's saying anger, contempt, and disdain aren't the result of seeing God's story. In fact, aren't those the very emotions that undergird the act of murder itself. Isn't this what God would see in the heart of someone who murdered his brother? Okay, so uh, I want to, before we move on, I want to, to belabor just one last piece because I think it's really challenging. It's been challenging for me. It's this, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. That's, that's hard. That is should be scary if you took him seriously. Uh, now, now, we know that the Bible tells us that we don't earn rightness with God. We don't earn righteousness. We 
long for it, ask Christ to forgive our sins and be our Lord. And we receive that as a free gift. So, so what is he saying here? Because uh, we're going to run into this time and time again. I don't know if you remember that first week. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And I'm sure most of you remember the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And the first words after Jesus, out of Jesus' mouth, as soon as he finishes the Lord's Prayer, is this. For if you forgive men their sins when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive your sins. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's intense. And I think, I think as, I, as I wrestle with this before the Lord, I think this is what Jesus is saying. It's not that forgiving your brother is what achieves righteousness. That would, be, that would be a really short list. I can just do that, and bam, I'm fixed. But if you have not understood that God's grace, grace means unmerited favor, unmerited kindness. If you have not understood that God's grace is not just for you, but for everybody else as well, I think Jesus is saying maybe you don't actually understand grace. Maybe you are quite literally in danger of the fire of hell because you have not understood God's grace and accepted it. Uh, we'll have more time to process that in the weeks to come. So, light and uplifting. Now, if that weren't intense enough, I, you know, it's like, oh man, can we just, you know, go watch football or something? Jesus keeps going because football hasn't been invented yet or something. Uh, so, Notice Jesus doesn't stop with, okay, now all you have to do is avoid getting angry, avoid disdain, avoid, avoid contempt. He says, I want you to go farther still. I want you to be like me. Um, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother then come and offer your gift. In other words, it's not enough to just not be angry. I want you to seek reconciliation. I want you to actively do that, and I want you to treat it like it's urgent. Settle matters quickly, right? I want you to treat that as urgent because it is urgent to God. Reconciliation is urgent to God. This is a priority to our Father, who is also our Master. We must, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, this is an unequivocal command to seek reconciliation and to do it quickly. You know, there's something tacitly that we can fall into that was no different with the ancient Hebrews. It's this sort of weighing out thing. Well, uh, there's a few bad things that I've done, but I'm going to, like, give a gift. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give a gift, and that'll, that'll sort of even it out. And, and Jesus says, no, no, you need to settle the matter quickly. The burden is on you. In fact, perhaps he might go as far as saying, actually, the first gift that you offer God is obedience, is going to be reconciled, not just offering this, this other thing that God, God does want he does want you to respond in gratitude, but he wants you to settle matters quickly. 
Um, I think it's, it's appropriate to extend this just slightly. Because um, this, I don't think Christ is saying, you know, in that technical sense, okay, you only have to worry about reconciliation if you're giving a gift. Otherwise, just let it linger for a while, right? That's certainly not Christ's message. And so I want to actually come back to um, our mission statement as a church. Uh, and, and if you're new to grace, this is who we are, who, who we long to be as a body. Uh, it's actually on the front of your bulletin if, if you're looking for a copy. Grace Bible Church exists to glorify God by making disciples through devotion to the word, gospel-centered worship, sacrificial service, and building community as a family being renewed by the power of Christ's love. And I would say, really, having conflict, having animosity in your heart is going to get in the way of all of that. It's going to get in the way of your appreciation of God's word, of worship, of service, of being a part of God's family. Animosity, bitterness, that seed of murder is going to get in the way of everything we long to be. But I'd say the flip side is true also. And that's, that's uplifting. God doesn't ask us to be grace givers before we've received grace. Christ starts out by saying, if you hunger and thirst, if you recognize your brokenness, yours is the kingdom of heaven. God wants to be your father. And the, the beauty, I think the subtlety of these is that all four of these sort of key aspects also, as we experience them deeply, I think invite us into having hearts that love reconciliation like God does. As we are changed by God's word, I think we see God's heart, we see his heart against murder and for the exact opposite, reconciliation is love. As we worship, as we see the beauty of God, I think it moves our heart to be more like God's in reconciliation. As we serve, as we see God's heart for other people, I think it gives us that heart to love and be reconciled. And as we see ourselves, not as individuals, not as me, me coming for a little bit, getting what I can and leaving, but as God's own, gathered together, loving with open arms to invite in whoever would want to be a part of God's family, we see God's heart for reconciliation. Okay, so... Uh, now, I want to get on to sort of two final questions before we're done. This is the first question. Is getting your way distracting you from God's story? We all know we're not supposed to text and drive. We all know there is the risk of death out there, and a little text message is not that important. And yet it's so tempting, why? It's such a little thing, right? I mean, it's a little thing, and it'll probably be okay, right? I mean, truth be told, I have texted while I drove. I didn't kill anybody. You know, and yet, I, I sincerely think this is the picture of allowing that seed of bitterness to be in our heart. You know, there is the picture of God's redemptive story. He is inviting us to be the message of good news, of hope to the world. It's out there. Lives are on the line. And, 
but it's just so tempting to have these little pockets of, of, of bitterness, these little stories that I tell myself, you know, maybe, maybe things should be easier for me. Um, confession time. Uh, this week, I was just really loving this. I was being blessed by uh, seeing God's story. Um, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 27. And I was realizing, wow, this is all through the Bible. This, uh, David is writing this psalm, and he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And I say, oh, yeah. He's telling himself, I'm going to keep my eyes on the true story, right? The Lord is the, the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? David is, David is keeping his mind on the true story, the point. Um, and in fact, David gets really specific. He says, when evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. And, you know, I had to scale it back here because my enemies and my foes don't usually throw spears at me like they did David. And I think, I, I do think that this is actually probably a good spiritual practice to sort of write a psalm yourself. So I was, I was sort of writing this psalm to the Lord in my head. I was saying, Lord, when inconveniences get in there, when people are inconsiderate, I'm not going to be distracted from your goodness. Because as David says, kind of the, the peak of Psalm 27, it says, one thing I ask of the Lord this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And I'm thinking, God, I want that to be my story. I want that to be what I tell myself. Then half an hour later, I find myself ticked off at somebody because they inconvenienced me. Ticked off at somebody because, you know, I had a schedule. And I really kind of needed to get from A to B, and this, this wasn't happening. And it's sort of like, oh, I'm poor in spirit. And so I start the cycle again. I mourn. I mourn that I can't keep my eyes on God's beautiful story. And I humble myself. And I say, Lord, I hunger and thirst to be consumed by your story. And I start again. Maybe for another 30 minutes. But the point is, we have the opportunity to be consumed by a story. So I want to leave with this question. What will you choose to believe? I'm not talking about theoretical belief. I'm talking about what will you choose to tell yourself is true? What will you choose to believe hour in and hour out? I might say, who would you choose to believe? Who is it that's good? Who is it that's coming soon? I want to say amen, come Lord Jesus. Let no speck of murderous hate be in my heart. And I pray the same for you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, I thank you that you're patient with your children. That even as a, a two-year-old screws up a hundred times and their parents forgive them. I thank you that you forgive us. That your heart is for us. That you're constantly teaching us to love as you've loved. I pray that you would continue to teach us by your word, that you would continue to lift our eyes from the petty things that we get consumed with to the beauty of your ways, to the goodness of your purpose. Let us flourish by following what you have for us wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name, amen.